Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The mission of the Greenville Oaks Church of Christ is to inspire people to follow Jesus because we are convinced that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Find out more about Greenville Oaks or connect with us online at greenvilleoaks.org. As always, we ask that you subscribe to, rate, and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with Congregational Care Minister Keith Maloney. At Greenville Oaks, we believe that life with Jesus is truly abundant. We are committed to showing people the grace of God, inspiring them to follow Jesus, and empowering them to live according to His teachings. Because we're convinced that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. We need you. And you need the church. We We need you. And you need the church. We need you. And you need the church. I'm all in. We're all in. I'm all in. We're all in. I'm all in. I'm all in. Are you all in? 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 I was just a young man. Had been preaching at a little church for just a short time. When one of the members there, an older guy came up to me and said that he wanted me to do him a favor. I said, well, sure. What do you want? He said, my wife and I want to renew our wedding vows for our 50th wedding anniversary. And we want you to, to lead that, that occasion. I'd never done that before, but I said, "I'll, I'll be happy to help you any way I can. And I'm glad I did because I'll never forget that day when they came together at the church with all of their family gathered to celebrate that occasion. There were the kids and the grandkids and the nieces and the nephews and various loved ones. And, and most of the little church that was there was present. And I stood up at the front with the the groom, and uh, he had his best man beside him, his brother-in-law. And the music started, and the bridesmaid, the bride's sister, came down the aisle. And then came the flower girl, one of her granddaughters, putting the little petals out. And then the wedding march came on, and the bride in her beautiful white dress, her hair coiffed to perfection, And the biggest smile on her face marched down the aisle. And they renewed their vows. They re-experienced that occasion that they had 50 years before. Uh, It was a wonderful time. It really was. They, They remembered, but they did much more than just remember their wedding. They reenacted it. They re-experienced it and recommitted to each other. And in a very similar way, Jesus calls us to remember his death, to remember his sacrifice for us. And he started that the night before he was to be crucified. He was having a supper with his disciples in an upper room. And 
Well, Paul recounts how it went in 1 Corinthians. He says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And that word remembrance is a translation of the original language, but it falls far short of conveying what what Jesus was saying The idea conveyed by the word involves much more than a cognitive exercise, just recalling a mental image of some kind. You see, it wasn't a coincidence that this was happening during the Passover time because the Passover was that most wonderful of Jewish occasions when they remembered their deliverance from being slaves in Egypt. And they didn't just tell stories about it. They didn't just recall what had happened. They brought the past dynamically into the present and they re-experienced what had happened so many years before. That's why to this very day, Orthodox Jews will celebrate Passover just as they are instructed in Exodus chapter 12. They roast a lamb and they prepare the bitter herbs and they bake the bread without yeast, the unleavened bread. And they gather together as a a family to celebrate this meal, this feast. And the men have their cloaks tucked into their belts and their sandals on their feet and their staffs in their hand. And they share because that's exactly how God had instructed his people to do it at the first Passover. To remember in the Hebrew sense means to re-experience. The youngest son asked the father, the patriarch of the clan at Passover, why is this night different from all other nights and why do we eat the meal this way? And the father responds to the son and he doesn't say, well, a long, long time ago in a place far away from here, our forefathers were slaves. No. He says, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt. But the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. And he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on oath to our forefathers. In a very tangible way, they re-experienced the deliverance of God just like it happened on that night. So in the midst of that Passover time, Jesus says to his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. He wasn't just talking about thinking about it or telling stories. He didn't say, talk about this. He said, do this. 
the taking of the bread and the drinking of the cup, we reenact what Jesus did with his disciples on that night. And we rehearse, we, we re-experience that supper, which symbolizes his body broken and his blood shed that purchased the salvation that no other power on earth or in heaven above could. And so we celebrate that today. I hope you have your communion materials. Would you pray with me? Mighty God and eternal Father, you who delivered your children from slavery through the blood of a lamb, today we recognize that the greatest deliverance has been provided for us through the sacrifice of the perfect lamb of God, without spot, without blemish, for us who are so filled with imperfection and the ugly stains of sin. But we jo- we rejoice, O oh God, that your grace reached down past all our unworthiness and rescued us and redeemed us and delivered us so that we might belong to you and be your people, free from all that would enslave. Father, as we together break this bread and as we take this cup, May we honor the lamb and the body broken and the blood shed for us. For it's in the precious name of our Savior we pray and amen. I hope you'll be here next Sunday when uh, Eddie Sharp returns. It it will be a blessing. But today we're going to finish up our series about being all in. And we want to do that by thinking about it from a little different perspective. Uh, sorry, we don't have a panel today. I know you're disappointed. Those were great. Uh, have you ever noticed how whenever there is a special occasion, something really worth remembering, we always seem to have food as a part of that. Like that couple at their 50th uh, wedding anniversary exchanging, they're renewing their vows. After that was over, we went to the little fellowship center there in that little church and had cake and punch and whatever. Uh, weddings today are big celebrations. And there's there's some planning that goes into the ceremony, but the big deal is the reception. And it may be a, a lavish meal or just punch and cake or anywhere in between. But we enjoy, we enjoy having that food together when... Uh, when someone celebrates uh, a birthday, we have them over for dinner or we go out to a restaurant and have a birthday celebration and we have a meal. Or when uh, maybe we acknowledge, recognize uh, an award that somebody got at work or uh, maybe they're just marking a milestone of their employment or maybe they're retiring and we have uh, a luncheon or a dinner to celebrate that that individual or those individuals. Um, even when we just have family gatherings, on special occasions, we have special dinners. There's Christmas dinner, Easter dinner. Maybe you're going to go with somebody and have a Labor Day barbecue tomorrow. But we celebrate with food. And that's not new. That's not unique to our culture or new to the present day. That's been around for a long, long time. 
We look at the Bible, we find that meals were associated with those really important times. Just the Passover meal was perhaps the most significant celebration that they had. But there were others as well. In fact, there was an amazing time in Exodus 24 that there was a, a meal to celebrate. Uh, we don't hear about this one near as often. But God had given the law, his covenant to the nation of Israel, to Moses. And Moses had read it to the people. And they said, everything that God has said in this law, we will do. And then God invited Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders of Israel to a dinner party, to a feast. They went up on the mountain. Look at Exodus 24 and verse 9. Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like pavement made of sapphire clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against those leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and ate and drank. Can you imagine God hosting you for a dinner? Uh, this meal was an important part of Israel's memory. Every time they recalled this story, they were drawn back to the making of that covenant with God and to the extraordinary feast when God had a meal with them. But this wasn't just important to their collective memory from the past. This was important to what God was going to do in the future. Centuries later, when the destruction of Jerusalem was imminent, Isaiah the prophet talked about this great feast that God would have for his people. In Isaiah 25, beginning in verse 6, he says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shrouds that enfold all peoples the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. Isaiah says God is planning a time where he's going to gather his people together. But unlike back in Exodus 24, this is going to be all people gathered together. All nations are going to come together and share in this incredible banquet that God is giving. And he will eat with them there and will swallow up death and wipe away all tears. Now, as this story was recounted in Jewish communities over the years, probably gradually, but it definitely changed in its meaning and significance for them. Until by the time Jesus was here, they didn't think about this being all nations. This was just their party, just the Hebrew nation. And so they, <laughs> the message was unmistakably clear that the outsiders weren't wanted it was just them. It became for most Jews a story that emphasized Israel's exclusivity instead of God's inclusivity. And that helps us understand an episode in Jesus' life that we read about in Luke 14. Jesus is at a dinner party and someone 
refers to this great feast at the end of the days. Luke 14, verse 15. When one of those who was at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And everybody knew exactly what he was meaning, exactly what he was getting at. Isn't it going to be great when the end comes and God takes us up to be with him and everybody else, all these other nations have to eat their hearts out because they're not included. Jesus responds by telling a story. He did that a few times. He said a man was giving a great banquet and invited many guests. But for whatever reason, the guests that he invited first all refused the invitation. They gave various excuses, most of them pretty lame, some of them downright insulting. And so the the, the person giving the feast decided to go out and invite the, the blind and the cripples and the lame and the and the sinners, which just nobody did that back then. And they came in, but there was still room left. So he sent his servants out into the roads and the streets. And he said, you bring in people from all nations, bring the Gentiles in. And they did. And they were all together in this feast. The message Jesus is giving is unmistakably clear. In God's kingdom, all the barriers are going to be torn down. Everything that divides people, everything that separates us from each other are going to be taken away. And we're all going to be together as one. And the host will eat with his guests in the most wonderful and lavish of feasts. What Jesus was saying flew directly in the face of contemporary religious thinking of his day. And this radical and revolutionary thinking is something that Jesus not only taught, not only advocated, but that he lived out in his life, which is why he was always in trouble with the religious leaders, because he was always associating with the the really bad people, the people who were rejects, the people who were who were just real sinners as well as the, the blind and the lame and the crippled and the, the people that nobody wanted to be around. The low lives of his day, he was forever associating with. People that the religious folks couldn't bear to think would ever be accepted by God. So when Paul writes to the church at Corinth, which is what we read when we were about to have the Lord's Supper, It's in the midst of talking to them about some real problems they were having within the church. There was a lot of division, a lot of people that didn't want to accept each other. And Paul is writing them and addressing the problems they're having. And he calls them to come to the table of the Lord, accepting one another and respecting one another, the way Jesus advocated, the way Jesus modeled for them, because they were having a real difficulty with it. Instead of following the attitude of Christ, they basically were treating people the way they always had been accustomed to, 
the wealthy people, the, the, the respected people had the prime positions and they were just going about associating with one another and, and having the things the way they'd always had. And the, the poor people, the downtrodden, the, the outcasts, they were, they were just still struggling with all of the challenges and issues that they had before they became followers of Jesus. It wasn't a pretty picture. And Paul specifically and forcefully addresses these problems. Now, the fact that there were problems in the church at Corinth was not an unusual situation. If you've read through the New Testament letters, you, you realize there were problems in every single one of those churches of various kinds. But for some reason, the problems that the church in Corinth, the followers of Jesus there were having seemed to be more intense, more of a struggle than churches in, in other places were having. I don't know. I can't say for sure why that was. But perhaps part of the reason is that we don't get any indication in Paul's writings that they were having the same kind of struggles and issues with people outside the church that other churches in other cities were having. And that's understandable. I mean, if they continue to pretty much live and act and behave the way they always had and the way people in the larger culture think and behave and act, well, there really wouldn't be any occasion for conflict, right? And maybe because they didn't have the kind of conflict with the the non-church culture that other churches did. They wound up finding things to argue about and divide among themselves. Now, I'm not sure, but it may be that churches in the 21st century are experiencing some of the same dynamics and some of the same struggles as the church in Corinth did in the first century. Because in our country, in our world that we live in, we've long understood that this is a Christian nation, that people outside are pretty much like us. They have the same struggles, they have the same joys, they have, uh, they deal with the same problems. They embrace the same ideals. They uphold the same values as we do. So why would we have any struggle with our culture if our culture is Christian? Unfortunately, that is changing very, very rapidly. Uh, some of us can remember a time when evangelism was treated as a matter of convincing another follower of Jesus that our doctrinal positions was right. I'm not sure that was ever God-honoring, but it's devastating for us to think that way now. We now live in a world where our neighbors and coworkers may be Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or more likely just not interested in any kind of spiritual life at all. 
our challenge and opportunity is not to convince them that our way of doing church is right. It's to lead them to know that who Jesus really is and help them come to faith in him. The reality is that the relationship of Christians to the larger world in which we live and specifically our own culture in America is becoming more different all the time. There was a Gallup poll in 2019, and this is how they summarized church membership. U.S. church membership was 70% or higher from 1937 through 1976, falling modestly to an average of 68% in the 1970s through the 1990s. The past 20 years have seen an acceleration in the drop-off with a 20 percentage point decline since 1999 and more than half of that change occurring since the start of the current decade. That was the 2010 decade. A poll that the Gallup organization did this year shows that the trend continues. It says Americans' membership in houses of worship continued to decline last year, 2020. Drop, I'm not talking about church attendance. I understand that was affected by the pandemic. I'm talking about membership. Dropping below 50% for the first time in Gallup's eight-decade trend. In 2020, 47% of Americans said they belonged to a church, synagogue, or mosque, down from 50% in 2018 and 70% in 1999. Now, before we start making some quick assumptions and drawing some unfounded conclusions, there's some other things that you need to understand about the culture in which we live that the Gallup organizations provided us. When people were asked if they believed in God, over 80% of Americans answered positively. When asked if they pray outside of church, 75% said they do often or sometimes. And when asked if they believe that the Bible is God's word, over 70% responded that they do. Folks, people haven't turned their back on God. They still believe in God. They still pray. They still even believe the Bible is God's word. Over two-thirds of our country thinks that. They just don't have any use for church. And if you wonder why that is, maybe we should let them tell us. When asked why they don't attend church, 80% gave one of these two responses. Either they preferred to worship on their own, or they just don't like organized religion. People in our world today don't have a problem with God, but they seem to have a problem with the church. People love Jesus, but they often feel very differently about those people who claim to be his followers that to get together on Sunday. So what do we do about that? Well, at that same supper that we read about Paul talking about in Corinth, uh, later on that evening, John records what Jesus told his followers, and he had something to say about what their identity should be. In John 13, 33, Jesus says to them after that supper, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. 
Now, folks, the command to love people is not new. It's been around from the beginning. So why is Jesus calling this new? Because he says, I want you to love people in a way nobody's ever loved them before. I want you to love them the way I have loved you. Which raises the question, how did Jesus do that? Jesus loved those who didn't have their lives all put together in nice, tidy little packages who were all cleaned up and shined up and everything was going okay. Jesus loved people in the biggest mess of their lives. And he wasn't afraid to enter into that and accept them and eat with them and love them. He says, that's how I have loved you. And that's how I want you to love each other. And then he says in the next verse, verse 34, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. There has perhaps never been a time that was more challenging for us to do this than right now. Our world today seems to be more divisive and more polarized and more antagonistic toward anybody who doesn't see things the way I do than it's ever been. And I believe that people with good hearts and a deep desire to honor God have gotten sucked in to that attitude and are just diving headfirst into the rancor and arguing and condemning each other that seems to be everywhere in our world. Brothers and sisters, it's time we stopped doing that because Jesus said, the reason people love me and don't care about you is because you're not loving people the way I did. It's not that they're not interested in religion. It's not they're not interested in all the animosity. We've said for years that we want to be a both-and church. And I believe we desperately need to be a both-and church in this area. Make no mistake. We need to always stand solidly on God's word and his will for our lives and never bat an eye or apologize about being true to living the way he called us to live and upholding what he calls right and good. We must be that church. And at the same time, We must be a place where people are loved first in spite of the mess without having to jump through any hoops. We love them and we don't pretend that there's nothing that needs to change. Far too often those values are seen as mutually exclusive. 
The enemy has done his best to convince us. We have to pick one or the other of those. We either have to stand on God's truth and blast anybody who's not doing it right. Or we have to love people and just accept them and turn a blind eye to things that God says are self-destructive. There's one problem with both of those alternatives. Jesus didn't do either one. Jesus did both. He loved people and he still stood for the truth that God has given to us. And if we want to have a church that the world wants to be a part of, we have to learn to love people like Jesus did. Jesus loved people right where they were, just the way they were. But he loved them way too much to leave them there because he knew that the way they were and what they were buying into as product of our culture was far less than the abundant life that God created them to know. And he wanted them to know God's shalom, God's peace, God's abundant life to the full. He said, that's why he came. It's past time we stopped arguing with one another and get about the business of reaching out to a world that is increasingly not interested in our arguments inside or outside the church. But they are desperately wanting to be loved the way Jesus loved them. May God help us be that place. And it starts with being all in on doing that. Would you pray with me? Oh God, gracious Father in heaven, we confess that we far too often get caught up in the spirit of the world around us, which pushes us to exclude instead of to accept. And in our zeal to follow what we believe you're calling us to do, we can too easily reject those who don't understand things the same as we do. But Father, we want to be all in when it comes to bringing all into your kingdom. Lord, help us never to sacrifice staying true to your will and your word because we want people to like us and think well of us. And Father, help us never to sacrifice loving people first because we somehow see ourselves as judges who need to condemn people instead of as your ambassadors who lovingly lead them to Jesus and the abundant life he wants us all to have. Oh, Father, by the power of your spirit, unite us as one people who will both stand solidly on the truth of your word and graciously offer open arms to those who desperately need your loving embrace. And in all of this, Father, may you receive the glory and the honor and the praise in you alone. For we pray this in the name of the one who was all in in loving us as we've never been loved before. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray and amen. Would you stand for our benediction? May God give us the grace to be a both and church and love people without reservation and stand on the truth of God's word without equivocation and bring to the abundant life to those that he came and died for. 
Go in peace today. God bless. Thank you for listening to this message from the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. We hope this message helps you to inspire people to follow Jesus because you're convinced, like we are, that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Connect with us on Twitter. You can find and follow us there at Greenville Oaks. Discover more about the Greenville Oaks Church online at greenvilleoaks.org.